You know, the family, the idea of the family really has a lot to do with faithfulness that endures from generation to generation. And so this is a song that this was one of those two songs. uh, uh, I thought either one of these, either the one or the other one that I picked, either this one or the other one would have fit well with this. But this one fits well in particular because the family is really God's way of passing on the faith from generation to generation. Now, there are other things that do this, right? There's evangelism. There's times when we go out and we tell people that have never heard about Jesus Christ. But really, by and large, the biggest way that the kingdom grows is through parents faithfully teaching children. So tonight, we're going to talk about the family. We're going to talk about parents and children, but we're also going to talk about husbands and wives in in marriage and in parenthood, Really, the the biggest thing that that I want you to get out of this, this was an article that was added to the Baptist Faith and Message because of the trends in society. So whenever you see a creed or a confession or a statement of faith of any kind, most likely one of two things has happened. Either, number one, this group is trying to define themselves as either distinctive of or continuing of biblical Christianity from other forms that are already out there. So uh, um, early on, Baptists found out, figured out that we need, we need some kind of confession. And within the first 40 years of the first Baptist church being founded, you see the first London Confession in 1644. They realized that we need to put what we believe down on paper so that we could express it in a way that's consistent so that those who agree with us can identify and say, yes, we agree with you. And those that are distinctive from us, we could, we could identify where we are distinctive and where we believe the Bible speaks differently from what other churches teach and preach. And so there's that kind of a case. But then there's also the kind of case where there's heresy. If you look back at the early, early church, like before there were denominations, early church, if you look back in the first couple of centuries, you will find the creeds like the Nicene Creed that were written specifically to address heresy. In other words, there is a problem with certain things invading the church, and they realize that we need to carefully define what we believe about this topic so that we can separate what is orthodoxy from what is heterodoxy. Orthodoxy meaning right belief. Heterodoxy meaning a different belief. Okay? All right, make sense? So it's usually one of those two things. Either there's some sort of error that we're addressing or we're just trying to define who we are, okay? In, 19, in the late 1990s, I believe it was 1996 or 97, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to establish a committee that would explicitly look at what we taught about the family and write a, an amendment a resolution that would amend the Baptist faith and message. In the year 2000, this amendment became not just an amendment, but part of the 2000 Baptist faith and message. It's the amendment on the family. So this article we're looking at is the youngest of, uh, of, all, of, of all of the articles. Every other article just about had been written 
uh, in prior Baptist faith and messages and had been written uh, before. It was just a matter of tweaking it and making sure that we're using the right kind of language or whatever it might be. Maybe we're addressing some problems here or there, but for the most part, it was taking what was already there and, and kind of double-checking it and making sure we didn't need to add something or reword something to, to, to more clearly state our beliefs. This one right here was written, drafted, and accepted by the convention in 1998 and then thrown into the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So this is the one. This is where Southern Baptists aren't just identifying who we are and what we believe. This is where we are showing what is wrong in the current society and what Scripture has to say about it. Okay? They're seeing trends in society as a whole, and we're looking as a convention to firmly and clearly state what the Bible teaches about the family. And the biggest thing that you need to know about the family in, in Baptist thought, in, in the way that we view the family, is that the family is the fundamental unit of society. So if you got your bulletins, this is where we start filling in blanks. The family is the fundamental unit of society. Okay? And, and, and it's so fundamental. It is ordained by God to demonstrate his love. So God is up in heaven. It's time immemorial. And he says, I'm going to create this world and I'm going to create all these great creatures in it and I'm going to create man and woman in my image. And he decides that the best way for men and women to know God's love, to understand his character and see it lived out in their lives is to know him. But the second best way is to experience the closest thing they can in human relationships to that kind of love. And so God ordains the family. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, parents, children. He ordains the nuclear family as the fundamental unit by which he will demonstrate who he is. The Baptist Faith and Message uh, uh, article on the family starts uh, with this. I only hit it once, I know. Sorry, y'all. God has ordained the family as the fundamental or the, as the foundational institution of human society. It is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. Okay, very simply, God has ordained the family. It is the most basic fundamental unit of our society. And it's people that are related to each other. Some, some related by marriage. You know, some of us make the jokes that we married into a really weird family. Uh, um, if, if it's the woman making the joke, she's right. If it's the man making the joke, uh, he's only half right because, yeah, because his family was probably weird at first. Some are by blood. You have children related by blood. Now, we know scientifically they're related because of the genetics to get passed on and all that kind of, you know, we understand that. But they're related by blood. They're related by adoption. So just because you go to somewhere, you find a child that's in need and you open up your heart and your home to them and, and, and legally adopt them does not mean they are not family. They are family. And the Bible makes no distinction here. Okay? So, so that's, that's the basic idea of what the family is, but it really breaks down to two types of relationships. There is the relationship of marriage, husband and wife, and there is the relationship of parenthood, parents and children, right? Okay, so let's talk about marriage. 
All right, I hope you brought your steel toe boots because this is one uh, uh, that oftentimes garners a lot of, of argument and bickering and complaining. But to be honest with you, God, God really makes it simple. Marriage is the union of one man and one woman for life that demonstrates the union of Christ and his church. So I said, remember, the family is ordained by God to demonstrate his love. The family is God's way of showing us in a practical example sort of sense the best way that we can get into it what God is like. Because when you love a, a wife or a husband, you are experiencing the kind of union that God has within himself. Now, it's not perfect. It's not a great representation, but it's the best we got. It doesn't always show us exactly what God is like, but it's the best thing we've got. And when it's done well, marriage sure looks really good to the person who's pursuing God because, because they can see in that godly marriage. I can think back to being a summer missionary, and, and there were a couple of couples through my years of summer missions uh, uh, that I remember. One, uh, the guy, I remember his name, but I don't remember her name. The guy's name was Ed, and Ed and his wife, they just had a communion with each other that was amazing. Like, I would have loved to have been one of their kids and watch this marriage happen right before my eyes. Because even in the little bit of time that I spent with them, I saw more than just, you know, and in, sometimes you can tell when it's just play and it's just for show and it's just like, you know, it really isn't like this all the time, but we're going to put on a front. No, the way that they talked and sometimes they didn't even have to talk, the way they could glance at each other and know what the other was thinking. And this was a fairly young couple. This wasn't a couple that was in their 70s, you know, that had been together for 40 years or so. This was a, this was a couple that, that were about my age now. Okay, And he and his wife, with a couple of young kids, there was just a communion among them. They were a union, and it was beautiful. I think of another uh, couple that I ran across that, that was just, I mean, y'all, when you go to a place like Philadelphia, you're north of the Mason-Dixon line, you think you are completely out of water, and then the first people you meet Ask if you want some sweet tea in their house. I'm telling you, that is heaven on earth because you thought you were leaving sweet tea forever. No, this was a, this was a couple that were, they were, he was part of a church plant and I was helping them out with the church plant. And as we were there and I was getting to know him and his wife, it was just an atmosphere of peace. The way that they related to each other, it, it, it taught me so much about what I wanted my marriage to be like. And some of the things that I do well, I'm, I'm emulating off of these people. Some of the things that I don't do well, I'm, I'm actually not emulating them, and maybe I should be. Marriage is a union of a man and a woman for life that demonstrates the union of Christ and his church. When you look at the Bible, and God talks about marriage, especially in the New Testament, Paul, he makes it clear. The purpose of the marriage is not for you and your spouse. The purpose of the marriage is for Christ. It's his marriage. And because it's his marriage, everything we do ought to be bringing glory to Christ. And so Paul says, well, if you look at the church and Christ and their relationship, you can see what your marriage ought to look like. We'll get into that, the specifics in just a second, but start with uh, the Baptist faith and message. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. 
I feel like I've cheated on my points because I've basically just reworded what it says. One man, one woman, covenant commitment for a lifetime. Okay? It goes on. If this will go on. It is God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship the channel for sexual expression according to the biblical standards and the means for procreation of the human race. He's showing in this relationship the kind of relationship with Christ that Christ has with his church. Okay, how do I know that? Well, even from the very beginning, we see God's the one who's establishing the union. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. From the very beginning, God creates male and female, both in his image, and then he gives them a job. He says, be fruitful and multiply. You know, let's just be real practical. Part of the reason for marriages is to have kids. Now, there are some marriages where God ordains where the two do not have children. I know godly people that do not have children, though they have been married for a long time. God has chosen for whatever reason that they not have children. But by and large, the real practical purpose of marriage is kids. It's to have a next generation, which means if, if you don't want to have children, you really got to check, is this really God's will? If you don't, if you, if you're now, don't go bugging your kids to have grandbabies like all over them. It's like, aren't you going to, don't you want to have more kids? Don't, don't do that. I've been, I've been on the receiving end of that. That's not cool. Don't do that. And don't, and don't give my kids sugar and then send them back to me. You give them sugar, you got to keep them for the next three hours. That's, that's my rule. Uh, but God, God makes this marriage. He fashions it in such a way so that we have a way to have a next generation. That's why, that's why he has put man and woman together and the two become one flesh. That's not just a super spiritualized meaning. That's a very practical reality in marriage. Then in Genesis chapter 2, we see a little bit more detailed look, a little bit different perspective of how God creates uh, the woman. He starts with the man and he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. This is not God saying, I can't trust this guy. I got to find somebody to look out, out for him. This is God saying, every other man, every other animal that I've created has some mate, has something to share life with it. Man needs that too. You see, if we were God, we wouldn't need that. If we were God, we wouldn't need a companion, a partner. This says helper, think more along the lines of, partner. It's like uh, in math, you talk about um, supplementary angles. Supplementary angles are two angles that add up to 180 degrees, straight line. So if you put them side by side, you get a straight line across, okay? That's more of the picture of marriage. 
You got an angle and you got another angle and they're perfectly fine angles by themselves, but when you put them together, they make something better. They make something worth having. Make sense? All right? So God says, it's not good that he should be alone. He needs someone to share life with. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, Adam starts, uh, he goes through and he names all the animals. And he comes up with all kinds of crazy names. I don't know where he came up with platypus or aardvark. But he comes up with some, some names. Names every single animal, but there's not one found. So God says, I'm going to put you to sleep. God put him to sleep. Deep sleep falls on the man. Verse 21 says, So the Lord God, uh, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Hang on, it'll go forward like five slides in a minute here. Oh well. Oh, there it is. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Um, There's actually, the Hebrew word here is, something along those lines. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24 tells us that uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then verse 25 makes an interesting statement. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a beautiful picture of what marriage ought to be. There is such an intimacy between the man and his wife such an intimacy with God and with each other that there's no shame. It's it's beautiful. Man, to have marriage that look like that. Jesus uh, refers back to this in in Mark, excuse me, chapter 6, or chapter 10, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God, therefore, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He's asked a question about divorce. And he says, look, God's the one that put it together. We don't have any authority to take it apart. This is why the Baptist faith and message says that it is the uniting of a man and a woman for a, in a lifelong covenant commitment. It's a union for life. It's not meant to be broken up. If you superglue a salt shaker and a pepper shaker together and you say, take these apart, you might be able to get them apart, but you're going to break them in the process. Same happens with man and a woman. When a man and a woman are married, they are intended to stay married. Now, we could talk about exceptions and we could talk about all kinds of things. Jesus says, you know, when there's, you know, unless there's, there's uh, uh, some sort of spiritual or uh, 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 sexual adultery, something like that, unless it's some case like that. But let's just be real honest. God doesn't want for us to marry and then divorce. There are certain circumstances that are terrible. And I've got to be honest with you. There are cases of abuse. There are cases that are just absolutely horrible. But by and large, God's will is for man and woman to stay husband and wife. It's just not supposed to. God's joined together. Let not man separate them. 
So the disciples come to him later and they ask about this stuff. Um, verse 10 says uh, that they come to him. There we go. And then verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Just very simple. And, and the opposite is also true. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So you have these, this, this uh, idea that Jesus has, that, this obnoxious idea that married people ought to stay married. How dare he? How dare us try to change what God has done? It, that, Baptist Faith and Message also says this. The marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people. So it's not just about uh, um, husband and wife have to be together for a lifetime and it doesn't really matter what you act like. It doesn't matter how much you're fighting with each other. None of that matters. You still just have to stay married and that's what glorifies God. No, God is actually glorified when you act like you're married. Not like like you're just going to nag each other. Not like the world thinks of you being married ought to act like. But when you are modeling how God relates with us, that's when a marriage truly brings him glory because that's when a marriage is doing what it ought to be doing. And done right, marriage will model God's way of behaving. That's why divorce is such a bad thing because God doesn't divorce us. He doesn't turn his back on us. Yeah, we screw up a lot. We sure deserve to have have his back turned on us, but he doesn't do that. That's not who he is. So it shouldn't be how we are either. I thought about several examples uh, in the Bible, but one really sticks out, and it's from the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, Hosea marries a woman who he knows is a prostitute, and um, the first kid they have seems seems like it's his. Second kid, there's some questions. Third kid, it's so much not his that he actually names it, not mine. How would you like to have that name as a kid? And after she leaves him and gets herself in a big mess and is a slave because of all the trouble that she's in, chapter 3, verse 1, God says to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is adulterous, an adulteress. But then watch his reasoning. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, is it bad to love a cake made out of raisins? Not necessarily, but those are, those are being used in idol worship. What he's really saying is these people of Israel, they keep committing adultery against me. They keep cheating on me, but I love them anyway. Now you, Hosea, go love that woman who cheated on you, just like I love my people who keep cheating on me. Boy, that's a powerful, powerful love. Let's look at the roles within the marriage. There's a husband role and there's a wife role, right? The husband's role leads, provides for, and protects the family in the model of Christ. In other words, he is leading the family, he is providing for the family, he is protecting the family, just as Christ is doing these things for the church. Again, Baptist faith and message. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. You see how I'm cheating on my points here? <laughs> I could have just basically put the article in there, but that's, that's our role as husbands. Okay, So if you're a husband, this is for you. Lead your family. Provide for your family. Protect your family. 
And that's just not me talking. That's God talking. Malachi 2.16. But for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Your wife needs you, man, to lead. Now that doesn't mean you should get all big-headed. That doesn't mean that you are all that in a bag of chips. But it does mean that she needs you to walk first. I think of leading as this way. There's always a car at the beginning of the traffic jam. Be that car, man. Y'all are like, that's a terrible analogy. Why would <laughs> Think about it. There's always something at the beginning of the jam. Up in front of that car, everything's flowing smoothly. But there's one car that is going 15 on the interstate. And it's got everybody jammed up. There's one car slamming on the brakes. There's one car slowing way down. There's one car doing something. And because that car is doing that something, everybody else is jammed up behind him. I mean, we need to be that car. We need to be that one that is causing everything else behind us to react to us. You might think of it this way. Um, if, if you got a, jan- a chain and you're pulling something, like you attach the chain to the truck and you're pulling something, there's always a first link. There's always a link that hooks onto the truck. And then beyond that are the other links connected to it. And until you get that first link on the truck, that chain is not going to be useful. Once you get it on the truck, though, once you put it on that truck, then that chain can become useful in pulling up that stump or whatever you're pulling. Do do you see what I'm saying here, man? It doesn't mean that we're more important. It just means that we're the first. Which means, guys, if you're the first, step up and lead. Be the one to stand in the gap. Be the one that leads the prayer. Be the one who talks scripture with his children. Not just every now and then, not just because we're in church, we have to, or, or just because just because of something. This is something that we do every day. Lead the family. Lead the way. Go first. You know, the first is always the hardest one. I think about um, who would you rather be in a war? Would you rather be the front line or like the fifth or sixth line? The front line are the bullet catchers, Right? The arrow catchers, they're, they're really the guards for everybody else. Be on that front line, man. Take the bullets and the arrows for your family and lead the charge. That's not just leading, it's, it's providing for. One, one scripture, I didn't, I didn't write it down, uh, but one scripture talks about uh, a man that does not provide for his family is a curse. If a man doesn't provide for his family, he's, he's ungodly. Provide for your family. Don't just provide them with the stuff. Provide them with the example. Protect them. There may be times where they're exposed to attack. You get in the way of the attack and you protect them. My dad was driving along one day. We're in the car with him. Me and my sister and my mom and uh, he sees something going on and there's this guy trying to make this woman get into a car. She doesn't want to get in. So my dad does what any good former Marine would do. He gets up and yells at the guy to leave her alone. 
Guy's cussing him out. She's trying to get away. He's trying to chase her down with the car. My dad gets our car in the way to where he can't really get to her. So much so that, that he is trying to go into a store. He is blocking this guy from being able to get to her until she gets safely inside the store and then stay in there to make sure he doesn't go in right after her. That's what I'm talking about. Husbands, that's what we need to do. Now, could he have gotten hurt? Yeah, he could have gotten hurt. He didn't care. She wasn't going to get hurt. Not while he could do something about it. And, and we didn't even know her. Now imagine somebody's threatening one of his kids or his wife. You see what I'm talking about? That's, that's, that's biblical manhood right there. I don't have to fight you, but if you want to fight, I will fight for the right things. Ephesians 5, Paul tells the husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a sacrificial love. It's not just a love, well, I love you, I'm going to send you some roses on Valentine's Day. This is a love that is willing to sacrifice self to make sure that her best interest is cared for. That he might sanctify her. Not just to love her enough to give his life for her, but to love her enough to give his life for her so that he can be the means of her salvation having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ladies, get yourself a husband like that. I know. I know. You already, you already got a husband. I get that. A little late for that. Get your daughters to get husbands like that. Get your granddaughters to get husbands like that. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Remember the two become one thing? Here it is played out. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man, same verse, they keep going back to Genesis. It's like, it's like that's a paradigm that we should see all this marriage thing through, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, husband's role, lead, provide for, and protect, just like Christ does his church. Wives, you got a role too. The wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. Just as he is to lead, just as Christ leads, she is to submit just as the church submits. Now, remember, it's not just the wife submitting to the husband. The husband is submitting to the wife. It's just when the husband submits to the wife, it looks like love. That's the way in which he submits to her because we are knuckleheads, men. Right? Are we knuckleheads? Yes, you are. You don't, don't be afraid to admit it. Your wife knows you are. We're knuckleheads. And for us to love someone else is really submission. That's why we get down on one knee when we propose. Right? George, I would have liked to have seen that just because you would have been a normal height on one knee. You wouldn't have towered above everybody. You'd have, been, you'd have been eye level with Linda. It wasn't, okay. We'll have, to, we'll have to get some details on that later. 
But the wife's job, the wife's role, not job. I don't I need to be careful about that because it's not a job, it's a role. The wife's role is a role of submission. Now that does not mean that just because the knucklehead thinks you should do something means you should automatically do it. Sometimes he's a knucklehead and he needs to know that. Sometimes submission is saying, uh, you're crazy. That's not a good thing. Sometimes love says no. But more often than not, more often than not, love sees what the husband is doing and wants him to succeed. And so she's willing to submit, not because he's great at everything and he's got the perfect ideas and everything, but because she knows that two people can't lead in a dance. You ever done that? Y'all ever dance, try to lead? I'm going to tell you, I've danced with girls that try to lead. Doesn't work. Not when he's trying to lead. Now, she could be throwing him all over the place and doing all kinds of stuff, and he's just passively letting it happen. That's not good either. But it doesn't work when two are trying to lead. Doesn't work. She knows that. And so she's willing to say, you know what? I'll step back. I'll let him lead. And he may make mistakes. I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to lovingly offer whatever advice I can give him. But submission is still, it's still submission. The Baptist Faith and Message puts it this way. And by the way, there were women and men on this committee. Okay? So this wasn't a bunch of male chauvinist pigs saying, what do we want our women to do for us, guys? You know, that's not what this was. These were people praying over the scripture and seeking God's will. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband. Notice the husband is serving in the leader role. So she is serving in the follower role. Now, it doesn't mean that she's only following. It doesn't mean she has no voice. It just simply means that's where the submission is. That's where her role is. Even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. Now, in a perfect world, the husband, like Jesus, is making good decisions and leading in the right way. In an imperfect world, that's not always the case. And submission gets a lot more tricky. But she does what she can to demonstrate the love that the church has for Christ to her husband. She being in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Y'all, it takes both. Ephesians 5, we talked about the husbands. Let's back up a couple verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this might make you think, well, the husband must be more important than the wife. No, the husband and the wife are equals. They're on the same level. It's not that the husband has the image of God and the wife has some sub-image. It's not that the husband is closer to God because he's a man and God's a man. Not doesn't work that way. God might be father and son, but he's not a man. No, they're equals because God has put his image in both. Notice, where does the value come from? It doesn't come, it doesn't come from the husband being in charge and it doesn't come from the wife submitting to everything her husband wants. The, the value comes from God's image in both of them. We just read it a second ago. The husband and wife are of equal worth before God since both are created in God's image. There you go. We're equals. Very quickly, let's move to parenthood. 
parenthood is a blessing of God with a great responsibility. This is what uh, Baptist Faith and Message says. Children from the moment of conception are a blessing and heritage from the Lord. And the Psalms give us this. There's several different Psalms that talk about children in this kind of way. Psalm 127 is one of them. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. So here we have the picture of a warrior with a bunch of arrows ready to fire off in the heat of the battle. And we said, that's like, that's like a guy with a lot of kids, full quiver of arrows so he can send out a bunch. Just like a warrior, we're going to have plenty of ammunition before going into the battle. So a father and a mother would want to have plenty of children to send off into the world. I read of families that had, you know, families used to have like 10, 15, 20 kids regular. Now they get their own TV shows if they have that many. But I think of all the times that even in, in some of the most difficult circumstances, those big families ended up making such an amazing difference. Look up the name Wesley sometime. Read about Susanna Wesley and her brood of kids. Someone drew a picture of Susanna Wesley uh, talking about uh, prayer, I think. Was, it was a quote on prayer or something. And she's got kids hanging off of her. There's kids underneath her and they're hanging on her legs and on her arms and she's cooking a meal and there's kids everywhere. And I just think, how in the world could they do it? And maybe, maybe that's why they knew a little something about prayer. All right, so how does this relationship of parenthood work? Well, parents model Christ and teach their children in love to discipline and follow God. Very simply, parents model Christ. You want to know what to do? You want to know how to parent? Easy, act like Jesus. That, the hard part is making that work in real life, right? But we model Christ. It's the whole point. The whole point is for our children to love Christ, our children to know Christ. And so everything we do is geared toward teaching them in discipline and in love. Because really, discipline without love ain't discipline. It's torture. And love without discipline ain't love. They go hand in hand. Parents are to demonstrate to their children God's pattern for marriage. Parents are to teach their children spiritual and moral values and to lead them through consistent lifestyle example and loving discipline to make choices based on biblical truth. Hero Israel, Deuteronomy 6. This is called the Shema. It's something Jews sing over and over and over again every time they come to worship. In fact, many Jews say this every day multiple times. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, with all your soul, excuse me, and with all your might. Okay? Jesus adds in mind because heart and mind are separate ideas in his day. But in that day, heart and mind both were contained in the heart. But then it continues. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Should they just be on your heart? No. They should be beyond your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. 
and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, everything you do ought to be putting these words over and over and over again into your kids. We're to teach them. I think this is finally given out. Psalm 78 it talks about, uh, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He, he goes on to say, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. There you go. We're commanded to teach our children. In fact, Proverbs 13 puts it this way. He who spares the rod hates his son. Not just, not just spoils him hates him. So we are to teach our children. We are to model Christ in front of them and teach them to love God and to follow God through both love and discipline. So what's children's role? Children submit to their parents by honoring and obeying them. The word honor is used... Oh, by the way, the Baptist Faith of Message says it this way. Children are to honor and obey their parents. I'm telling you, I'm cheating. I'm just, I'm just like rewriting it. You know why I'm cheating? I'm just rewriting it? Because they were cheating. They were just rewriting it from the Bible. Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and mother. The word honor literally means give weight to. Make them weighty. In other words, you listen to them carefully and you give what they have to say a lot of weight as you make your decisions. It's not just do what they say, though that's where it starts. When you're a little kid and you're three, you shouldn't be weighing out your options, considering what your parents say, but also kind of figuring in other things too. No, you're three, you should be doing what your parents say. But by the time you're 13, 23, 33, you begin to learn that your parents have a lot more wisdom than you may want to give them credit for. And so you listen a little more carefully. Oh, you can make your own decision. You can decide to do whatever you want to do. But, you know, mom and dad say this, and I know they love me. They've taught me how to follow Christ. I really, really should listen to what they say. Now, they, they, they've got a right to make their own decisions. Let's make it really hard for them to make the wrong ones by living out the right ones. But children submit to their parents by honoring and obeying them. By the way, this is the first command with a promise. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. And then Paul says in Ephesians 6, 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Very simple. Hey, your kid, do what mom and dad say. But you don't know my mom and dad. Just follow them. You might be surprised how much better they'll turn out to be when you get older. I told you, my dad wasn't a Christian. He wasn't the example of all things, but he was the example of some things. And I thank God for the example that he did give that was right. Even if he gave one that was wrong, a lot of what he gave was good advice. A lot of what he gave is stuff I wish I had learned a long time ago. Some of the things he says are, they get weighed a little differently because it's coming from him. And that's, 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 that's good. For those of you who don't have your parents around anymore, and you look back on their legacy, thank God for them and still hold them in high esteem, still honor them. For those of us who do, 
I know we're truly grateful to have that privilege still. God has designed the family to be this mutual sort of submission. The husband submits to the wife by loving her, caring for her, providing for her, protecting her, leading her. The wife submits to the husband by submitting to him, respecting him, building him up. The parent submits to the child by teaching them, teaching them to follow Christ through example and through words, through discipline, out of love. The child submits to the parents by obedience, by honoring their parents. And in all these things, we're submitting to God. Because in all these things, you know what's really happening? We're learning how to better relate to God as we learn to better relate to one another. Our church mission statement says we are God's family. He's dad. Christ is husband. And the whole point of this family thing is to help us be more and more like our dad, to be more and more in tune with our husband. Father, I thank you for the privilege that it is to be in your family. Help us to be children who obey you and who honor you. Help us to be wives that submit to you. Help us to be parents who lead our children to seek after their heavenly father. Help us to be husbands who lead the way with boldness and courage coupled with love that sacrifices self. In other words, help us be more like you in the way we relate with each other and in the way that we relate with you. Heavenly Father, make us one, even as you are one. In Christ's name we pray, amen.